Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. And our host said, oh, oh, you know, those actually, those are the poisonous snakes that that live in the trees and at the base of the trees. And so I'm thinking, like, what? okay, <laughs> I'm going to walk through this forest where there are sleeping snakes that I can't see. And if I step on, well, what happens to me if I step on them? I ask him. And he's like, oh, well, you'll die. Welcome back to Point of Origin, the podcast about the world of food from around the world. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield, and today's episode is a sweet one. It is a lovely theme that we're calling From a Flower, which is a celebration of both fruit and flower. In putting together this episode, we kind of backed into a greatest hits from the Mediterranean Middle Eastern kitchen. So honey, dates, and saffron will all take center stage today. One of the voices that you'll hear is from an old friend of mine, Gordon Hull, who is and has been for some time now making one of the most distinctive beverages you will ever taste. It is a sparkling honey wine made in the style of a fine champagne. It's super good, and you will learn all about Gordon, all about his honey wine, and how it's made. We're also going to check in with one of the coolest ladies in the game, Leela Elamine of The Recipe Hunters. And Leela is so very cool. She's just like us, an origin forager who for the last five years has been traveling around the world, visiting and documenting small agrarian communities, which she does remarkably well. And today she's going to tell us a story that you will not want to miss. It is a very harrowing harvest expedition in the Siwa Oasis in Egypt. And last but not least, Ethan Frisch stops by to talk to us all about saffron. Hey. Hey. How are you, bud? Good. I'm calling you from uh, the iHeart Radio studios in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Our next guest is Leela Elamin. She is an award-winning docu-media producer with a concentration in photography, videography, and writing. She is one half of the Recipe Hunters, who are frequent collaborators with Whetstone Magazine. And we are pleased to have her join us today to talk about, among other things, one of my all-time favorite stories that has ever appeared in print. It is a story of a date palm harvest in the Siwa Oasis. Leela Elamine, thanks for joining us on Point of Origin. Thanks, Stephen. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we are thrilled to talk to you. Uh, and before we we talk about the aforementioned story, we should talk about who you are um, and how you got into your current world of documenting stories about food and people all over the world. I had like a very untraditional path. You know, I graduated college. I decided I wanted to be a doctor. I started doing research and then I read this book about cancer and I fell in love with the science behind cancer. And so I went into cancer research and, you know, I didn't really think about the implications of working with cancer patients, but I ended up working with specifically people that had three to six months to live. Um, they were enrolling in these clinical trials as like a last ditch hope to, you know, find a cure. And I, I formed really close relationships with my patients and it was, it, it, it ended up being the best thing that I ever did, but also the most difficult. I ended up, you know, spending a lot of time with these people who, who were, you know, essentially dying. And, and throughout my time at the cancer center, I, I just kept hearing the same things. I kept hearing like, I wish that I'd live my life according to my passions and interests and not let society dictate who I am, what I do, what I love and what I value. And, and I wish that I traveled and I wish that I had, you know, been a dancer and I wish that I had really lived my life according to what I wanted to do. And hearing that over and over again, I kind of started to like reexamine what I was doing with my life. And one patient in particular, really, he said, you know, Layla, say yes to everything and reach for the sky. And then he passed away and I, I just kept like hearing what he said and, you know, in my ear. And so I, I decided to take a sabbatical from, you know, school and, and work. And I began saying yes to everything. So I moved out, you know, to the Midwest. I started volunteering on a cheese farm. I started working as a cheesemonger. I started like working on goat farms and, and, and volunteering at farmer's markets and just really like diving into everything that I had ever been interested in. And along the way, I brought my camera because I'd always, you know, loved photography. And around the same time, I, I met my business partner, Anthony, who was kind of going through the same thing, like trying to figure out what he wanted to do what, with his life and what was important to him. So we had this crazy idea, so crazy, about six years ago to to start volunteering on farms around the world, according to what we were interested in, like five and a half years later, like we've volunteered in over 70 international communities, learning about traditional food practices and recording them and documenting them and learning about endangered ingredients around the world and, and these endangered recipes and working with some of the most amazing people you can imagine, like people that are so close to the earth and so close to their culture and their history. And we, we originally began by recording the recipes and the stories of these people and these cultures via photojournalism. And it naturally evolves because of my interest in video to film. 
So, you know, we started making these short documentaries about the the lives and stories of these indigenous people really keeping their culinary heritage alive through the practice of traditional foodways. And when you were thinking about living your life after you'd gotten this uh, really poignant advice, living your life in the way that you saw fit, um, what was it about agriculture and farming? Like I know for anyone, the response to that could mean many different things, but for you, it meant going to a farm. Where do you think that inclination came from? I wanted to be closer to nature. We were interested in agriculture to understand what we eat. And then also there's just something so peaceful about working on a farm and being close to nature and touching nature. Have you had a particular agricultural experience that has made you feel like maybe that is a way that you would like to to spend your life? Or have you felt more content that your role as a documentarian is actually the better way to serve and satisfy your interest? Yeah, that's such a great question, Stephen. I actually, I do want to have agriculture as part of my life. And on a day-to-day basis, like if I am somewhere for a period longer than you know, one month, I already have my own sourdough yeast, and I've planted seeds. I have like corn growing from Puebla, Mexico right now. It's in my it's actually in my bones. Like, and so right now, I'm, I'm young, I'm excited, I have so much energy, I want to keep documenting food. But I I do foresee in the future finding a, a nice patch of land and, you know, growing my own food and having my own animals on a small scale enough to you know, serve myself and my neighbors. But it is something that I do dream about, you know? Definitely. So let's talk about how you ended up in Egypt and specifically uh, in an oasis called Siwa. So first of all, where is Siwa and how did you find your way there? Siwa is in the northwest region of Egypt. It's about 30 miles east of the Libyan border. We got to Siwa from Alexandria, which is the port city um, in northern Egypt. And you have to drive seven hours in the desert in order to get to this oasis. It's incredibly secluded. I mean, and for that reason, you know, it still retains a lot of its culture and a lot of its, you know, thousand year old traditions just because it's so hard to get to. And what brought you there? We went to Siwa on actually the first leg of our journey. I think we were gone for eight and a half months with backpacks. We were we originally went to Egypt and we were searching for traditional recipes, but we did start out, out um, at the pyramids and we were volunteering in a hostel there, refurbishing furniture. And you know, while we were there, we were learning about uh, tamaya, like learning how to make it's like Egyptian falafel, learning how to make bread, learning how to make Egyptian malahia. And during our time, we went to Cairo and we kept hearing about this because we were living with food researchers that we had found, you know, online. Uh, They were part of the Slow Food Network. We decided to go to this oasis. The driver picks us up and we drive for seven hours in the desert. Actually, we drive from Cairo to Alexandria then from Alexandria to Siwa. And I remember I slept for a lot of the ride because it's pure desert. I mean, you look around you and you can see nothing but, you know, sand and sky. So we're driving in the desert, driving in the desert. And, you know, we pass by these orange dunes and everything. We, we see Bedouins on their camels. And we 
all of a sudden go up a hill and go down and you see the most stunning glistening lakes and you see palm trees and it's the most it's like especially after being in the desert for so many hours you feel like you've entered a paradise and I have to say this, we've been to so many different places around the world. This is one of the most beautiful, surreal places. It's It, it doesn't even feel real. So incredibly beautiful. Wow. Ugh, incredible. So once you got there, you did you already have a plan, like a volunteering plan set up? Or did you sort that out once you arrived? So Anthony and I sort of bartered uh, work for Roman board a lot of times. So in this instance, we contacted these farmers that we found through the Slow Food Network that were preserving an endangered type of date and the tree of the date. And so we reached out to them and we said, hey, um, you know, we're documentary filmmakers. And at that point, I think we were just doing photography. So we, you know, we said, hey, like we wanna come research your food take pictures of it, learn some traditional recipes. Can we stay with you guys in exchange? We'll work on the farm and we'll help you. And they were like, absolutely. Like we, we definitely need help right now. We're actually doing the pollination of the day trees. So if you could come help us clear out the forest, we'll put you up in our home. Up until this point, was this your first encounter with the date palm? It's funny. We lived um, in Cyprus for about six weeks previous to going to Egypt. And we had just missed the harvest season um, in Cyprus. So when we heard about the opportunity to learn more about dates in Egypt, we jumped at it. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm Lebanese American. I grew up eating dates. It's like what you had at the end of a big meal. It's what you, you know, your mom gives you as like an energy booster. So I had never... I, I'd seen dates on trees, but I never really thought about how the, the, the process was of, you know, harvesting dates, how they did it. And it's actually absolutely phenomenal how people harvest dates around the world, specifically in, in Egypt. You know, these indigenous seaweed men, they, you know, are wearing socks and they climb up these 50 foot trees like it's nothing like like you know they they're spiders or something i i can't even we called the guy that was showing us around and that was pollinating the day trees his name was echo and he climbed these trees like an avatar so we ended up calling him echo the avatar it was really it, unbelievable to see the amount of strength that, that these men have you know as kids they're they're climbing these palm trees so when they get to be men it's like it's like nothing yeah and we we do have a photograph of akko in the magazine and it is really phenomenal to see and like the trees themselves you have to set the scene for us a little bit more because there's so much going on in this story can we back up to the actual pollination of the dates how does it all happen to give you guys a little bit of a a setting or context. Batnas Island is where the date tree forest was that we were volunteering on. And it's on one of the lakes in the oasis. And basically, it's this massive grove of date trees. And they still have ancient Roman aqueducts throughout the island. They also have vegetable beds where they'll like, they have, you know, chickpeas and fava beans. But at the point, they were regenerating this, this date tree forest because it had gone 
kind of unwatched and unkept for a while. So they were reclaiming it, our, our hosts. When we got there, we, we started helping them clean the day tree forest. So basically, the female trees are the ones that produce the fruit. And because of that, throughout the years, people have really taken care of the female trees and kind of let the male trees you know, they haven't cared about them so much because they're not the ones producing the fruit, but they still grow a certain amount of male trees so that they can pollinate the female trees. And basically in old days, what would happen is there would be enough male trees that it would just, the wind would pollinate. But now since they don't have, you know, so many male trees, they have to actually climb the trees with the male seeds in their hands and bring them and put them into the female inflorescence. Mm -hmm. So basically, Aku would, would go climb up a male tree, cut off the spathe, which holds the inflorescence, which has the germinating seeds. And then he would bring it back to the tent. He would cut it open and he would shake off the inflorescence and he would um, take all of that, all of the germinating seeds and he would climb up into a female tree and he would, you know, stick the the male germinating seeds into the female flowers to, in order to germinate them. It's so it was, it was a bee. Yeah, exactly. He was acting as a bee. But the most interesting thing that I learned, I think, about um, pollinating date trees and even harvesting dates is that it is incredibly dangerous, not only because of the height, but also because at the top of the tree, in order to protect itself, the tree grows these crazy long spikes. And if the spikes touch you, they, they will, or if they like pierce you, basically, it, they can infect you. So you have to, you first have to take the spike out and then burn the area that has been touched by the spike. Wow. So insane. And we see later in the story an example of just how intense these spikes are because on the, the floor, there's a whole nother dangerous situation going on too, right? Oh my gosh, yes. So when we first arrived on the this little island where they have all the date date palm trees, we are walking by and they're, you know, they're giving us like a tour of all the trees. And I see something kind of swaying in the wind, kind of like a ribbon. And, and then I look closer and I see a few ribbons swaying in the wind. And as I walk closer... I realized that there's snakes whose heads have been smashed in by the by that same needle that you find at the top of the tree and they they've been hammered into the tree these snakes are just hanging and then there's like a couple you know just token scorpions also hanging so I'm I'm like I you know you jump I jumped and I was like oh my gosh what 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 where did you why what's going on and our host said, oh, oh, you know, those actually, those are the poisonous snakes that, that live in the trees and at the base of the trees. But don't worry, they're sleeping. But, but, but don't step on them. You can't step on them. If you step on them, they'll bite you. But you won't really be able to see them. And so I'm thinking, like, what? okay, <laughs> I'm going to walk through this forest where there are sleeping snakes that I can't see. And if I step on well, what happens to me if I step on them? I ask him. And he's like, oh, well, you'll die. <laughs> and you can imagine and i'm in the midst of this forest i can't actually that's the thing <laughs> so i'm like wait a minute i'm sorry you're telling me that we'll we'll die and 
what? And he's like, you'll die. I won't die because they put the venom in our milk as infants. So we drink small, small doses of the venom. So we'll have the antibody or anti-venom against the snakes. So I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe that we have agreed to do this. I had known. And actually, you know, Stephen, that's super dangerous. Like there are things that we have come across and, and actually in farming, a lot of the most dangerous, I feel like have been snakes. You know, we were in Mexico working in a um, agave farm and it was the same thing. It's like, well, don't step on the snakes. They're pit vipers and they'll kill you. And you're like, well, how do you know if you step on the snake? So, um, yeah, that was pretty scary. Wow. That is incredible. So do you have a sense if most of the dates there were being exported or were they being consumed on the island? Um, I'm actually, I did at one point know that, but I'm actually not sure. I mean, one thing I do know is that dates and these palm trees are an integral part of the culture, history, and identity of the Siwan people. It's one of their main sources of sustenance. Literally everything you could possibly make with dates they make and with the trees and with the leaves. I mean, they make baskets out of the leaves. They make toys for the children out of the leaves. They make their houses from the tree trunks. They, they they make date bread. They make date pudding. They make date juice. They make date alcohol. I mean, anything you could think of, they make with dates. And the one kind of dish that really caught my attention is one that I had never heard of, if we can call it a dish, but tagella, um, which is made kind of with this date pudding that you just mentioned. Can you explain that dish to us? Yeah, sure. So, and I'm just going to take a step back really quickly to talk about the Society of Siwa, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Yeah, so Siwa is a really, really interesting place. It's segregated by men and women. When I say segregated, I mean segregated. You you walk into this bustling, you know, town of people and, and there are no women. So you're completely surrounded by men and the women they they mostly you know do household work they stay within the family they are completely veiled so even when they are out you don't really see them and the men mostly take care of going into the city or the town and they do a lot of like the working on farm they you know they go out to the restaurants they go out super they're the ones that go out shopping it's not primarily the women um so while we were there for the first you know three days i i did not interact with one woman um, finally, after, you know, volunteering on the farm, I was like, Hey guys, I really want to learn traditional recipes. Like, can you introduce me to the women? So they brought me to spend time with the women to learn the traditional recipes. And it was at that point that I spent a day with a group of Siwi women and they taught me how to make their traditional tagella. And tagella is basically a, I would say like a date pudding, but it is a very, very special dish that is used to sort of indicate how good of a cook a woman is. And it's often said that, you know, when, when, when a woman first marries, a sign to show that she's going to be a good wife is how, she, how well she makes the tagella. So tagella is basically that you take all of these dates, you deep hit them, and then you create a paste with with water and by heating the dates up and you stir the tagella for hours and hours and hours 
uh, slowly adding a little bit of water, a little bit of wheat that, that is grown on the island, on the oasis. And it is just one of the most simple yet intricate recipes I've ever come across because you, the, the trick is you have to have the perfect consistency. And I would really liken the consistency to maybe like a, I don't know if like a semolina pudding. I don't know if you've ever had that, but I haven't actually very creamy, completely consistent throughout. You don't feel any pieces of dates. It's absolutely delicious. But the one thing is that, you know, you don't, whenever you cook with dates, you don't add sugar because dates have so much inherent natural sugars in them. So, um, it, it ends up being this dense, thick, creamy pudding of dates. Yeah. And it looks sort of like a, a caramel color almost. And, um, my favorite thing that you say in this story is if strength had a flavor, it would be this. So I'm assuming that just like the intensity and uh, all of the like almost distillation of all the sugar and sweetness after many hours of stirring, it just must be like really out of this world. It, it really is. After having it, I've never tasted something before that after having it, you immediately feel energy. I mean, it is like a crazy energy boost where you feel like you can take on the world, you know, and it fills you up for hours and hours. And Tigella, one of the most interesting things about it is that you eat it with olive oil and you can only have a little bit of it because it's so filling. You know, it just sits in your stomach and it's, it's absolutely delicious, but it gives you a sense of like what the people ate in terms of, you know, f being farmers and having to work on the field and really needing a lot of nutrients and a lot of energy uh, Tigella really is the perfect dish to when you think of a farmer that they would that they would eat to keep them, you know, keep them strong and going throughout the harvest and throughout sowing the seeds mm -hmm. is the best place to find you online uh, at the recipe hunters or is there another place? Yeah, we post all of our um, content, including the short documentary films, on therecipehunters.com, so www.therecipehunters.com. But we also have an Instagram, and I, I check that, you know, every day. So it's at the recipe hunters. And any questions, you know, just shoot me a message on Instagram. And that's one thing that Anthony and I, we really want to be there for our community. Um, so we answer questions all the time. We encourage people to try our recipes, which are on our website. And it's great when they send us pictures of, you know, this endangered recipe that they're, you know, practicing at home. Um, that really is why we're doing this. So it feels good. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for your time and for all of your really interesting and important work. Thanks, Stephen. You're the best. <laughs> okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Ciao. Bye. That is Leela Elamine of The Recipe Hunters, friend of Whetstone, documentary filmmaker, media producer extraordinaire. Next up, we are in Northern California in the idyllic town of Point Reyes, one of my favorites in all of California, with Gordon Hull, the man who puts the bees in bubbly. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You're listening to Point of Origin, a podcast from Whetstone Magazine and iHeartRadio. Today, our theme is From a Flower delicacies and enjoyments that derive from the flower. And we are talking to an old friend of mine, Gordon Hull, who is the only person of his kind that I know of. He is a mead maker in Northern California, and he's joining us this morning to talk to us about sparkling mead. Thanks for coming on to Point of Origin. My pleasure, Stephen. Great to hear your voice. Same, same. So, I have to always begin in talking about your your product um, as someone who grew up a sommelier uh, and can often be not really jaded, but feeling very familiar with, you know, wine and alcoholic beverages of all kinds. The first time I encountered your mead, it stopped me dead in my tracks because I'd never tasted anything quite like it. It's a really distinctive product. Um, so before we talk about what it is in particular, I think it's probably worth us talking about where you're located because that has a lot to do with uh, the overall flavor of the meat. Yes, certainly. Well, uh, we're located, as you said, in in Northern California in Point Reyes Station. We occupy what at one point was a small dairy farm, which we have converted into a meadery. And here we're producing wine from honey instead of grapes. And we're using honey that we produce with our own bees uh, that we keep on the property and in other locations around Northern California. And then we also produce mead from honeys that we procure from other beekeepers all around the country. And our meads, as you alluded to, are sparkling. That's sort of a non-traditional style for for a honey wine. 
So you've probably heard of mead, but what Gordon is doing is altogether unique because his mead is naturally effervescent, meaning that there is no forced carbonation, which you find in soft drinks or bottled water. Before we talk about the bubbles, we've got to talk about the bees. Honeybees. They extract nectar from flour with very specific flavor compounds. And one of the best parts about Hydran's meads is that for every flower, there is a signature flavor compound that affects the flavor of the honey and therefore the flavor of the mead. Got it. And how did you begin your journey to becoming a mead maker? Well, it was a little bit by accident, as many things are. <clears throat> My intention was to start a brewery. I was working as a commercial brewer in Arcata, California, and uh, just learning the ropes well enough to start my own business. But by coincidence, I happened to be experimenting with honey fermentation. Yeah, I mean, and you can ferment virtually anything. What is it about honey that you were particularly drawn to? Well, first of all, honey is one of the most beautiful uh, materials to work with, one of the most beautiful foods that I can imagine. Is. Honey is quite literally the nectar of flower blossoms that has been harvested by honeybees and processed into this substance that is around 84% sugar, 14% water, and that each honey has such remarkably unique flavor characteristics. It's just, it, to me, is, is fascinating. And if you consider that there are conceivably hundreds of thousands of different varieties of honey out there. There's a lifetime of work to do to take these honeys and bring, take them through a fermentation process, this process that we've developed, and reveal the essence of that very flower that the honey has come from. Wow, so beautiful. Such a poetic way to, to think about it, and it really comes through and and all the different flavors of the mead. So once you started making mead, what what year was this? Well, uh, let's see. My first batch of garage mead was uh, 1995. And I spent two years developing the recipe and putting together my business plan, um, acquiring the equipment I needed uh, before opening the company in 1997. And that was in Arcata up in Humboldt County. So just south of the Oregon border on the on the Pacific Coast. Mm -hmm. So you're making mead in your garage in the mid '90s. Um, fast forward over, you know, 20 or so years later, what has changed for you um, in terms of your your process, but also the way of the world, uh, the consumer? Boy, good question. Uh, um, I think the the biggest change for us came about uh, really about 12 years into the development of the company when it became clear that we needed to find a way to expose more of the, our community to what we were doing. Uh, look, being located up in Humboldt County was very remote. My, my primary market was uh, in San Francisco, five hours drive away. And uh, that in itself presented some challenges. But then also... I realized that in order to introduce consumers to the product we're putting out, we really needed a destination for people to go to. And that led me to begin looking for farmland closer to 
the Bay Area, where we could, in a sense, develop the entire ecology of the honeybee on our farm in terms of keeping honeybees and growing the bee forage, those, those very flowers that the bees feed off of. So moving to the farm has been our biggest step and just exposing people to what we're doing. Let's talk about how the sparkling mead is actually produced. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. So we've been talking about the honey and the bee and how it imparts a distinctive flavor on the mead. But now let's talk about how the mead is made. So the first step is to dilute the honey with water. And that's because honey is about 84% sugar, which is far too much to ferment on its own. So in order to induce fermentation, the honey has to be diluted to a volume that more closely resembles grape juice, like when making wine. And in the champagne method, bottling, you first add a very carefully measured quantity of cane sugar and a new inoculation of yeast. You mix all that together in the the bottling tank, and then the, the wine is put into champagne bottles, and a beer cap is put on each of those bottles, and the bottles are put into something called tirage bins. They're just storage bins for bottles. They're put on their side in those boxes, and they go through a secondary fermentation. And what happens is that second inoculation of yeast we put in uh, the bottling tank consumes the cane sugar that we uh, also added, 
and it produces a little bit more alcohol, but more importantly, it produces carbon dioxide. And since we do have a beer cap on uh, on the bottle, the carbon dioxide cannot escape, and that's how we get our natural effervescence. After that's done, there is a, a final process in the method Champenois in which the, the yeast is removed from the bottle by using the process of riddling and disgorgement, uh, and then the product is just a traditional champagne cork and a wire hood and goes through cleaning inspection and then gets boiled and boxed up and it's ready to go. And the whole product, uh, process takes about uh, four months from start to finish. And why do you think it is that we haven't seen more producers getting involved in making such a an interesting value-added product like sparkling mead? Well, um, I think we're starting to see some uh, producers attempting to do this. I know that there have been instances of meaderies making uh, carbonated, artificially carbonated meads in order to try to create the same flavor characteristics. But the uh, champagne method is challenging, to, to say the least. It, it takes very specific equipment to make it happen, and that equipment can be expensive. Most of it comes from from Europe, and then there are a, a lot of opportunities to make errors in the in the sparkling wine process. It's difficult. It's about five times the labor of making a still wine. So I think it's a little bit daunting. I got lucky, I think, in that when I first started making my sparkling meads, I made it uh, in a bottle condition style, which means that the bottles were going through a secondary fermentation to create effervescence, but essentially I didn't remove the sediment. So there was sediment in the bottom of each bottle. It's like some of those bottle conditioned beers that you can get uh, at specialty beer stores. So I think I was lucky to get uh, kind of step-by-step genesis of my product, and it helped kind of guide me towards where I am now. What can you tell us about the the ways in which the different kinds of honey um, change the flavor profile of the meat? Every flower has really a unique signature of aromatics and flavor compounds. These differentiations between flowers are, are essentially that individual species of flowers efforts to attract pollinators to, um, to pollinate the flowers so that the, so that the plant can produce more uh, offspring. We find that our meads, spectrum of flavors of our meads can vary from a very extremely light, clear, um, almost grape wine quality of sparkling wine, all the way to flavors that are similar to a, a Belgian saison, and, and everything in between. We have flavors that can be earthy, uh, incense, uh, certainly very floral flavors. Some are east of jasmine or rose. Some are very herbal. So uh, the carrot blossom honey I'm getting from Central Oregon and, and the peculiar flavors that it has, it has this sort of vegetal quality that in a honey is not really desirable. It's a little bit funky. But what we found is that when we put that honey through our fermentation process and allow the yeast to metabolize it, uh, and to metabolize all of those flavor compounds and make it into something of a wine, 
and we taste that wine, we find these flavors that are, I would describe as incense and sandalwood. They're smoky and woody with a, a, a definitely a, a floral element as well. And they're extraordinary uh, flavors that are unique to that flower alone, to carrot blossom alone. And we find that these flavor characteristics of the flower are held within a kind of a matrix of the flavor characteristics that come from the honeybee herself. So if you picture what the honeybee is doing, she's collecting nectar from the flower and taking it back. She's ingesting it and taking it back to the hive. And then uh, she's putting that nectar into the honeycomb and processing it with her own enzymes. And she's uh, dehydrating it from the high water content of a flower nectar down to the very low water content of a honey. Uh, she's dehydrating it through heat and body heat and air circulation and then storing it in beeswax. And all of these efforts by the honeybee lend flavors to that honey. And those flavors, uh, whether it be a flavor of beeswax or of the propolis that is a part of the hive, those flavors come through in each and every one of our varietals as well. So we're really talking about a wine experience that is... Um, it's very complex. It is including both the botanical uh, flavors of the flower and the animal flavors of the honeybee. And it, it's uh, an experience really unlike any other. And it's one that lends itself to a sparkling wine in that by making it sparkling and more importantly, by making it dry, you're able to taste those uh, distinct flavors. And that's what makes up our whole product line of all of our different meat varietals yeah and they're all amazing and you i mean have had so much experience sort of as a in part farmer and maker um i'm curious how over the last uh two decades or so the constraints on the bee population and also the the irregular climate in northern california has affected your mead making? The honeybee situation is really quite ridiculous right now. Uh, in fact, we had this last winter, our hardest winter uh, on record in Marin County. I think that holds true for most of the country. Uh, some of the data on that is uh, still coming out, but it wasn't pretty. We lost something like 75% of our colonies over the winter time. And it just by comparison, imagine if you were a cattle farmer and you lost 75% of your herd over over one season, over one year. You know, that kind of thing is devastating. And we're not sure what to attribute those problems to. I think maybe for Northern California, two potential contributors would be uh, if the smoke from the wildfires we had here last fall created some problem with bee, uh, honeybee navigation that may have uh, affected the health of the hives of the colonies. That's certainly a possibility, but I don't know of anybody who's um, been able to verify that. 
We also had an extraordinarily wet winter. I'm actually originally from Seattle, and I'm used to uh, a month or so of rain without stopping. But since moving down to California, I kind of got used to having these California rains that happen for a day or two and then blow away. But this past winter, we had Seattle rains down here, and it would rain uh, literally for a week or two without stopping. And our local bees aren't uh, acclimated to that. And I think that may have had an effect on them as well. And then there are sort of the the other elements that are affecting bees uh, around the world, and that has to do with things like um, the lack of availability of uh, healthy nutrition, that we don't have the, the, the natural bee forage, the flowers in nature that we used to have in, in this country or elsewhere uh, due to development and due to monocultural farming. I think that's been a factor. Certainly, uh, on a national level, the use of pesticides has got to be uh, affecting the honeybee. And then bees have uh, uh, not the strongest uh, immune systems in the world, and they're vulnerable to uh, parasites and and viruses and uh, infections the same, even more so than we are, and they're a fairly ephemeral organism. Um, And so we need to expect that they will uh, the colonies will perish, but certainly not in the numbers that we've been experiencing lately. And anything we can do to uh, improve that situation, I think, is is better for the planet, uh, uh, quite honestly. Uh, and that's one of the great things about the farm that we have here is that it, it provides a wonderful opportunity for us to to educate our visitors about the importance of the honeybee and and how exactly the honeybee works, uh, uh, what she's doing for the planet. A lot of people are don't actually know exactly how honey is produced. They may know that uh, uh, it involves the honeybee, but uh, uh, understanding uh, that process in greater detail and the ecology of the honeybee, I think, helps the public to know uh, how they can help uh, to ensure that we have a healthy ecosystem for pollinators in general. Yeah. And I know that we talked a little bit about it in the very beginning, but this is really important and useful. Would you mind helping us um, understand in more clear terms what it is that the honeybee is doing for our ecology? The honeybee uh, in particular performs a, a, a critical service for us as humans and that the honeybee is uh, charged with pollinating all of the food crops that require pollination in order to produce the the fruits and the nuts and the vegetables that we eat on a daily basis. And there are statistics on how reliant we are on honeybees. Something like two-thirds of all of the foods we eat are only uh, producible because we have pollinators to produce them. So if you were to picture a world in which we did not have the honeybee to pollinate those crops, it would be a seriously different world uh, to live in. And our food choices would have would be extraordinarily limited. And not only that, on a on a sort of broader ecological scale, uh, it would affect the the biodiversity of the planet because the the honeybee and all of the other pollinators out there 
are helping to ensure that our ecological cycle continues and that all of the diversity of plant species on the planet can can propagate and stay alive. And so that biodiversity is is an essential part of the, the health of our planet. Well, thanks for breaking that down. Thanks for your important role in creating a inspiring sanctuary for these bees and um, also teaching many people about difficult topics um, using alcohol. Kudos to you. Good thinking with that. It's a great teacher. can be. And uh, I think if anyone is listening to this podcast uh, who has plans to be in Northern California or explore Highway 1, I can't recommend enough a visit to Hydrant Meadery. Um, it's such a serene and beautiful place with some of the most interesting and delicious fermented beverages you are sure to try. So thanks again for your time today, Gordon, and I hope to catch up soon and take my own advice and come drinking with you. Well, that for sure, Stephen, nothing better than getting you back here to the farm and, and sharing a glass of mead with you. I would love to do that. And um, we have miles to go, both you and I in our various projects, but uh, let's just keep cranking away and uh, share what we do with everybody else. True indeed. I'll take you up on it. Thank you so much, Gordon. I appreciate it. You bet, Stephen. Take care of yourself. All right. You too. Talk soon. Okay. All right. Ciao. Okay, our final story today, as I mentioned, was inspired by the artist, photographer, and writer who goes by the name of Kare Moreba. She is from southwestern Iran, from a province called Kuzestan. She travels through old towns and villages in Iran, and her travels are really informed by exploring the local food traditions of the area. In her Saffron story from Whetstone Volume 3 was really a standout of all of the stories that we've ever published. Uh, Kare has chosen to remain anonymous, so in light of that, I will do the honor of reading an excerpt from her story. Then right after that, we will be checking in with a spice importer to learn a little bit more about this fabled flower. The women go in straight lines, picking whatever is in arm's length. They hold their hand down in a Vulcan salute. Their fingers separated at the ring and middle finger grip each flower by the stem and quickly pull, but not too hard to keep the corm underground. They each carry a bucket where they throw the flowers, but Hodge Kanams is the fullest, brimming to the very top. They each carry a bucket where they throw the flowers, but Hodge Kanams is the fullest, brimming to the very top. At 58, she's been doing this for over five decades. She moves around the farm, squatting and bent forward constantly, like one who has every inch of the land etched deep into her working memory. Picking saffron wreaks havoc on your body, especially your back. It is the joy of that blooming goal that keeps you going, she later remarks, holding a handful of flowers in her palm. Locals do not call it saffron, but simply goal, a flower. 
Our next guest is Ethan Frisch, who is co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a spice import company. He's based in New York, and we're talking to him from New York this morning. Ethan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Ethan, you are a spice dealer, and that's a pretty cool gig. <laughs> Can you tell us how you got into uh, the spice game, and what does it mean to be a spice dealer in the year 2019? Yeah, sure. So, so I'm the co-founder of a company called Burlap and Barrel. We're a, a direct trade, a single origin spice uh, sourcing company. Uh, so we work with small producers in, in about a dozen countries, setting farmers up to export their own crops, which hasn't really happened uh, in the history of the spice trade, um, and then importing their spices to the U.S., which we then supply to restaurants and manufacturers. Uh, as, as well as home cooks. I was a, a chef and then an international aid worker. I lived in Afghanistan for uh, uh, several years. I did quite a bit of work in the Middle East. Uh, and I really, I just started bringing spices home in my duffel bag, uh, particularly from Afghanistan, where uh, there's a, a wild cumin that we source from the mountains, but then also saffron, which is something that Afghanistan has been uh, famous for, for for probably thousands of years. And, and uh, I just started bringing it home and sharing it with friends in the restaurant industry and and. Uh, slowly figured out how to turn it into a business. Such a cool company. I want to talk about Saffron, so that's a wonderful segue. It sounds like that was one of the very first things that you brought back from your time in Afghanistan. Is that right? Yeah, it it was really it was it was a spice that I hadn't really worked with a whole lot before. Um, you know, I had cooked in in Indian restaurants and uh, Italian restaurants and uh, Spanish restaurants. I had a, a pretty wide exposure to a lot of spices and, and worked in cuisines that use a fair amount of saffron, Spain and India in particular, but uh, I, I just hadn't, I hadn't ever really looked into it. And I think this is true in a lot of cases for professional chefs who sort of so heads down in the kitchen uh, that you don't have a lot of opportunity to, to think more deeply about where certain ingredients are coming from or, or any of the agricultural processes or the supply chains or the people behind them. And, and so uh, it was really when I when I moved to Afghanistan and started to to meet farmers or or taste different varieties or or start to think more about terroir origin in spices that that I realized there was this whole world that I had just been missing. Mm -hmm. With saffron in particular, there is a kind of cachet to it um, that I think people know about the idea of saffron or the price point of saffron more than they know about what it actually is. So just uh, in terms of the plant itself, can you break down for us uh, what is saffron? And um, we can talk about the culinary uses afterwards. Yes, of course. So saffron, uh, when you buy a saffron thread or a little packet of saffron threads, what you're actually buying is the top inch of the stamen of a, a purple crocus flower. The flower grows really close to the ground. The, the petals are, you know, three or four inches long uh, and really, uh, really beautiful purple and white color. And then in the middle of the petals, uh, there are three threads that are the, the stamens of the flower that extend up from a, a longer string that runs down through the stem of the flower. And, and uh, the top inch or so of each thread is red. Uh, and then as you go down that thread, uh, where they, where the three of them come together and then down through the stem of the flower, they turn yellow and then, and then white and they run all the way down through the stem as a, a long, single white thread. So uh, when you're buying really high-quality, pure saffron, all you're getting is that top inch. And one flower produces three threads 
Uh, you harvest it once a year. So it's, it's incredibly labor and land intensive, um, especially in Afghanistan where we source it. Um, it's the desert. So uh, you have to, the flowers open pretty early in the morning before it gets too hot. And you have to harvest them right away before the sun dries them out. And so, so as a saffron farmer, you have a very tight window, usually uh, a couple of weeks in the fall in Afghanistan. That's when the, the harvest season is in kind of October, November. And you have a few weeks when you have to pick all of your flowers, pick the flowers whole from the ground. And then in, in a little warehouse or, or some other kind of facility, uh, you're pulling the flowers apart, separating those three threads from the rest of the flower and, and, uh, and drying them. And the actual harvest itself is, it's not mechanized. It's done by hand. Is that right? Yep. Done by hand. Mostly, actually mostly picked by women. Um, although unfortunately most of the saffron kind of companies or, or the people you consider sort of the farmer, the person who owns the land or owns the production, those, uh, at least in Afghanistan, those people tend to be men. And then the people who work in the actual saffron uh, harvesting and, and separating the stamens from the rest of the flower, uh, those people tend to be women. And, and one of the things that Afghanistan is famous for is its saffron. And, and there's been a fair amount of investment and and also kind of hope in, in saffron as a, a, a driver of economic growth in the country, and especially in a country where a lot of farmers are growing uh, poppies for opium. Saffron has often been seen as sort of a replacement crop. And that's a whole, a whole bigger, more complicated political conversation. Uh, but uh, there's been a lot of investment by the U.S., by other governments, and by the Afghan government into saffron production. And so there's, there's quite a lot of saffron grown in Afghanistan. It's, it's grown in the West, right on the border with Iran. It's the same varietal, the same, uh, the same bulb, the same corn that they're using in Iran. So it's very similar often to Iranian saffron and a very similar climate, right? It's right on the border. So there's some Afghan saffron gets exported from Afghanistan and is labeled as Afghan saffron, but quite a, quite a lot of it gets trucked over into the border, over the border into Iran, uh, and then either sold as Iranian saffron or often what happens with Iranian saffron because of the sanctions that have been imposed on the, by the U.S. government. Um, Iranian saffron is often shipped semi-legally into Spain, uh, where it's relabeled, repacked, and, and labeled as Spanish saffron and exported mm. under that label. There's also a huge amount of fraud in saffron across the board. Uh, there's there's some funny statistics. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but Spain, uh, which, you know, again, it's famous for its saffron, grows something like a ton of saffron a year. Uh, but they export something like uh, 50 tons. Wow. Um, Good hustle, So where's that? It's a big difference. And where's that other 49 tons coming from? Uh, some of it is is Iranian saffron. Like I said, that's been smuggled in. Some of it is saffron from other places like Morocco or Greece. And people feel like the, the brand, the, the name, of the, the label Spanish saffron is more valuable. And so they just relabel it. They package it in, in Spain. And then a lot of it is is actually other parts of the plant. So that, mm-hmm. that long thread that I was describing, and there's some beautiful pictures in, in the West Zone um, uh, article about it that show that whole length of the saffron thread. But uh, the, the rest of the thread, the part that's naturally white, often that will be cut into one-inch segments and dyed red and mixed in with, with the actual stamen of the flower. Um, and so a company can legally claim that it's 100% saffron, but, but it's not the part of the, of the flower, the part of the plant that has the most uh, flavor and color, and that's, that's really sort of what's considered true saffron. Mm-hmm. 
So if we want true saffron and keep it real with us, just give us the truth. Do we need to buy it from burlap and barrel? Well, uh, you, you definitely could. Uh, but, um, I mean, if you're buying saffron, uh, what I would recommend is looking at the individual stamens. Um, there should be a little kind of crown at the top. It should open up into this. Uh, it looks like a tiny little crown with a slight uh, yellow tinge at the top of the of each stamen. At the bottom, you should see it taper down. And if it does start to turn a little bit yellow at the bottom, that's a good sign. Uh, a lack of consistency in color is actually generally a good sign in saffron because it shows you that it wasn't dyed. If it's dyed, it's all pure red. Mm. Um, another, uh, you, you'd have to buy it to be able to do this test, but another way that you can test it is by pouring some hot water over, over saffron uh, threads, a couple of threads in a little bowl or a cup. Um, natural saffron will, will release its color in a stream It'll almost come out from the stamen in a in a spiral. You'll get this long, slow spiral of yellow color, and you'll you'll see it sort of spiral out in the water. If it's been dyed, uh, there'll be a really quick kind of puddle, a round puddle of bright yellow color around the thread. Um, just if the color comes out too quickly, if it comes out in a circle rather than in a long stream, that's, that's generally a bad sign. Um, and and when you pour hot water over the saffron thread, you may also see them start to unfurl a little bit. And that's a bad sign. That means that uh, somebody's taken other parts of the plant and and kind of rolled them up to make them look like they're they're the the real saffron thread. Uh, but when you pour hot water over it, you can see them kind of open up on the furrow. That is all super good intel. As a former chef, uh, can you give us some of your favorite applications or for saffron? Yeah, so saffron is is a tricky ingredient to pin down flavor wise. It doesn't have uh, the same sort of intensity of flavor that another spice might. I find that it's more sort of a, like almost a, a, a bouquet, like a feeling in your mouth. Uh, it's not, it's not a flavor that, that sort of sits on your tongue in a way that, that something like cinnamon or, or black pepper or another spice would. Um, and it infuses really well into, into anything that's cooking in liquid. So obviously the classic recipes are, are saffron and rice, whether that's, uh, Persian traditions of saffron rice or Spanish traditions of saffron rice. But I also, I love it in, in tomato sauces. It adds this, mm. this huge amount of depth and complexity to a tomato sauce. It's great in baked goods. If you, uh, uh, bloom it in a little bit of butter or something like that, um, or, or just mix some threads into a batter or a dough that you're making and give it enough time to infuse, um, you'll get really beautiful sort of pockets of saffron aroma. As you as you bite into the cake or or the bread, um, mm. yes, it's a really it's a really special ingredient. It just needs a little bit of time to to infuse into whatever you're cooking. So it's not something that really gets sprinkled on at the end. I mean, you could sprinkle it on at the end, but it wouldn't that wouldn't be the most effective way to pull out the flavor. It's really something that has to be drawn out through the cooking process. So is does the heat because I know you talked about the hot water as an indicator of quality. Does it need to actually be like you can't make a drink that's chilled or something infused with saffron? Does it actually need the heat? No, you you absolutely could actually. Okay. In Afghanistan, the way that they that they make a that they make saffron rice often is to take a couple of saffron threads and put them in a little bowl with an ice cube, 
mm. um, and and let the ice melt and let the, the saffron absorb into the water as the ice melts. I don't know exactly why that's the method, but that's that's a pretty common way to, okay. to draw out some of the flavor of saffron and then put that melted ice, the, the infused water, into the rice that you're cooking, often adding it at the very end as sort of a, a color, kind of a, you get these stripes of yellow in the rice, but you've let the saffron infuse into the water, so you get you get a really uh, great flavor. Um, it works great in cocktails. You can infuse it into into spirits um, or into a simple syrup or something like that. Another another mixer into the cocktail and uh, and add it that way. It has an, a beautiful kind of golden, bright yellow color. Incredible intel. We appreciate it, my man. That's Ethan Frisch, co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a direct trade single origin spice importer thank you so much for joining us on point of origin thanks for having me yeah i'll talk to you soon my man all right ciao that was ethan frisch giving us the lowdown on saffron We hope you've enjoyed Point of Origin Episode 3. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks to our guest today, Leela Elamin of The Recipe Hunters, Gordon Hull of Hydron Meadery, and Ethan Frisch of Burlap and Barrel. Thanks to my partner, Whetstone co-founder, Melissa Shee, who helped produce this podcast. Thank you, Mel. Thanks to supervising producer, Gabrielle Collins, to Kat Hong, who edited this podcast. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. You can listen to more Point of Origin on the iHeartMedia app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, thank you to each and every one of you who is supporting Whetstone Magazine and listening to the Point of Origin podcast. We'll be back soon. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.